Hello, everybody, and welcome to another empowering episode of the Women in Confidence podcast, the go-to show for ambitious working women, and I'm your host, Vanessa. And today, I've got a great guest who's been transforming the landscape of leadership and well-being for over two decades. But before we get going and I introduce you to my guest, I just want to say that there has been an absence of about a month from podcasting. You may have noticed if you're a regular here. I just never recovered from various um, illnesses, iron deficiencies and various things, but um, I'm feeling so much better now. I think when I did my last episode, I thought I'd turn the corner, but actually I hadn't. So now I've just taken that month off to just really get my energy back, get my mojo back as well, and be able to lead this podcast with confidence. So I'm thrilled to announce So I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Vanessa Fudge, so another Vanessa, which is great, an accomplished leadership advisor and the visionary force behind Leading Well, which is her firm she established seven years ago. Leading Well is not just your average consultancy, it's a collective of coaches and mentors on a mission to empower individuals, teams and organisations to bolster their leadership skills and overall vitality. Vanessa's guiding principle is clear. Exceptional leadership is not just a nice to have, but a fundamental component of organisational well-being and the people who make it thrive. So through her extensive background in advising leaders spanning diverse industries, um, she's uncovered a groundbreaking truth that thriving companies prioritise the well-being of the entire human system, resulting in high performance, happier employees and a flourishing business. So welcome to the show. So, Vanessa, welcome to Women in Confidence and thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Uh, Very well. Thank you for having me, Vanessa, with you today. No, you're welcome. So, Vanessa, how I like to get these conversations started and really warm us into the theme of confidence is asking this one question. So, what does having confidence mean to you? For me, having confidence, it's quite linked to a sense of peace, peace of mind, peace that I can be exactly who I am and not needing to be anxious or fearful about how people might respond to me. So having confidence is just being at peace to be me. And have you always felt like that, at being at peace with who you are? Definitely not. Absolutely. You know, I just reflect quite frequently as I see Uh, teenagers and younger women and the enormous effort I put into presenting a certain way and trying to fit into a societal mould. And if only I could go back and speak to my younger self and just say, it's really just about being peaceful with who you are. But I certainly have come to that over some time. And what have you done to find peace in yourself? Uh, well, I've had to do quite a lot of work actually to find peace in myself. Uh, so definitely done quite a bit of self-development and spiritual development, the meaning of life, the meaning of this life and why am I here now and what am I here for? And I've had some great teachers. I've been very, very fortunate. I've had some terrible ones as well. And I've learned from them too, as we do. It's definitely been a quest. And uh, one of my teachers said once, uh, if, you, if you lose wealth, you've lost something of quite significance. If you lose your health, you've lost even more. But if you lose your peace of mind, you've lost everything. And it really stuck with me and it inspired me to cultivate myself into uh, enhancing that sense of peaceful to be me and cultivating that peace of mind. 
That's a really great um, piece of advice and a quote. So I might um, put that in the show notes just to remind everybody that that is such a great thing to say. If you lose your peace of mind, you sort of lose everything. That's great. So peace of mind and you talked about work and you talked about, you know, development is a nice segue into some of the stuff you do with your um, role as CEO of, of Leading Well and and that whole leadership development and and I imagine in your work, you've probably come across many women and I'll focus just on women for the purposes of this podcast, but I know you will have clients who are both uh, male and female. But for the purposes of this, what shows up for you with women that you're either on leadership workshops or you're coaching around confidence? I see a lot of overstriving. It's a wonderful thing to strive, isn't it? And to drive yourself and to want to achieve all that you possibly can. And I'm really behind that. And I also see personal sacrifice in that, not infrequently, where there's a lacking sense of boundary that can come in, the inability to say, actually, no, that's enough, uh, until it can be a little bit too late. So I, I do notice that because obviously I work with a lot of very successful women And I also work with a lot of successful men, so I can notice a bit of a contrast in that as well. And that's that's interesting, actually, that you have that ability to see that contrast. What what do you think is the most marked contrast for you? What do you think you would probably really reflect on and say that is a real big difference in the male approach and the female approach? I think for us as women, and this is not universal because there will be men that do this and women that don't, but I do notice for us as women, I see it in myself as well, uh, the self-questioning can cut quite deep. You know, am I? do I need to be more than what I am right now? What else can I possibly pour in and bring to this? And it, it brings about a lot of achievement and it can also bring about a lot of weightiness and anxiety. And I think it's so important that women give themselves that gift of joy in what they're doing. And so there there can be quite some polarity between the responsibility and the joy. And I feel it as well, because when you're at the helm of something, you take on a lot of responsibility for more than just yourself, including reputationally more than just yourself as well. And so that need to counterbalance that joy and to meet the demands of the responsibility. And sometimes I've been a bit jealous of some of my male clients because they can just be a bit better at just staying in touch with that, that joy, that lightness, that, that ability to relax into it a little bit more. Then I see a lot of anxious men, as I said, so I really don't want to paint this as, as a delineation or a divide in any way. It's just more of a leaning one way versus the other that I probably try and capture it with. I'm just going to go back to something you said about striving, and I wrote striving slash ambition. You know, I've read countless articles about ambitious women. Sometimes their class is difficult. There's not the, the sort of the structure of organisations isn't set up for an ambitious woman or a striving woman. I mean, how can how can women make it, make it, what's the word I'm looking for, make it in business and leadership in particular, because that's your absolute, your area of expertise. So they can be ambitious, they can strive without having some of this, well, losing some of the joy or exhausting themselves. What's your sort of advice on that? 
Well, it's possibly the first question, Vanessa, that you've asked me about confidence and to to really have that self-trust in place. And maybe part of the difficulty is for women that we are often following male role models. If you look at some of the more recent CEO appointments of women, it's off they're replacing men, whereas men are not so used to replacing women. So we do have this unique (laughs) dynamic that we have to navigate. And so I think the opportunity there for women is not to fall into the trap that they have to fit a mould that they can't possibly wear, but to have the courage to forge their own mould. And I've witnessed some wonderful moments where women have just stood up authentically, they've taken a risk, they've they've expressed themselves quite soulfully, which I really feel is a leadership superpower. And, and it's gone well. People have leaned in. They're actually receiving something from these women that they've wanted in leadership for quite some time. That's such an interesting observation that I'd never thought about before, that men are not, are not used to taking over from women. I find that, that yeah, I'm going to think about that. I'm sure that many men have taken over from women, but if we look at C-suite, it's, mm. It's a lot less likely. I used to be in the military and in terms of men taking over women, well, particularly when I was there about 10 years ago, it would almost been a rarity because there just were not enough women in leadership positions in the military, in the UK military at the time. So, yeah, that's it's just made me think. Just on that, Vanessa, just mm. that link, we've been running a program for women in the defence industry. It's just opened up into year 10. So it's been, it's been fascinating watching. And these are women engineers, many of them going into senior leadership roles in both national government defence organisations, but also in corporate defence. And I know what you're describing because watching these women over a 10-year period has been fascinating. Well, in that, well talking of then 10 years, because my next question was around, are you seeing then a trend sort of generally, um, but also in your work, around things changing. So women are coming into these C-suite roles. Women are taking on some big corporate organisations and women are are really starting to, I guess, break through the glass ceiling. Are you seeing a trend then or a difference in the approach to leadership in organisations because of this shift of more women taking up big responsible roles? Yes, I am. I'm noticing quite some shift taking place and It's a bit delicate too because uh, men still have a place and women are forging their own place and Mm. it's really important to pay attention to the dynamic between the two. Sometimes we focus on women, but really what we want is a very healthy dynamic between the men and the women in these senior leadership teams and that takes work and that takes new understanding. I'm noticing more and more that women are being more courageous to be themselves. I'm noticing topics that women would never even put on the table, like the fact they're going through menopause is now part of a boardroom conversation. (laughs) And women are challenging men. And I must say, the men need some support as well. And so, you know, this is a very different dialogue. It's not something that that they've experienced uh, prior to now. So there's an awful lot of change going on. And uh, once again, it's very important to look at the relationship between the two as well as what's happening in the one. Well, how do you think women can stand out as leaders and and get themselves recognised, visible and into those positions of responsibility? How do you think they can stand out? Well, 
once again, by being themselves and having that confidence to be themselves because women are bringing something really, really important to the table. And so we're seeing a rebalancing going on around the boardroom, aren't we? I, I really think your first point about confidence, but in an authentic way, a really authentic confidence is very different from a fake it till you make it. I mean, I cringe when I hear these sayings, but it's still co- it still crops up when I'm taking brief a brief for an executive coaching assignment. You know, this person really needs to work on faking it until they make it. And it's just, we know it's never going to work. Uh, I think we're seeing more courage and there many women have been Tra- you know, really blazing a trail when it comes to that authentic sincerity, sincerity in their leadership. It can be very tricky to be authentic. Where, where can people, I guess we're just talking people generally, be authentic? Because that can be uncomfortable. It's not always welcome. How, how would you recommend people go down that route of being authentic without upsetting people. It's a, tr- it's a tricky line to follow. I think there'll always be a boundary, won't there, Vanessa? There'll always be a boundary of, it's just not wise for me to blurt this out right now. And <laughs> it's, it's either not going to be good for me or it's not going to be good for someone else. And we need those boundaries. It is really, really important. And in parallel to that, this space of courage, I notice is is expanding as well, where people are mentioning things that they might not have mentioned five years ago. I mean, even the impact of COVID and the merging of home and work life and the window into people's home lives has changed the conversation. Women are speaking much more authentically about the demands of parenting and so are men for that matter, Mm. where they might have just really just put that off to one side and we don't talk about that in the boardroom, now they do. It needs tempering with the wisdom of what is it sound and right for me to say, uh, I've been guilty of oversharing. I know I have, and that's not a good feeling either. I think the flip side's even worse, which is I've tried to fit some mold. I haven't really honoured myself. People haven't even liked me anyway. <laughs> so I'm now in a double bind in that I put all this effort into someone, a reflection that's not really me, and it hasn't gone down anyway. And now I'm back where I started from. And so that's something that we don't want either. I was doing some research into you and your business before we came on air. And on your website, you talk about managing your well-being to be a great leader. Tell me a bit about that. And and actually, where does that fit in with being a leader? Because most people probably wouldn't make that connection between well-being and leadership. But talk to me about that. Yeah, we've put a lot of thought and a lot of observation into the fact that to be able to lead others, the most one of the most important dimensions is to demonstrate that you've got self-leadership first. Am I showing up with a certain quality of presence? Am I really there? Am I available? Am I tuning in to all the complex dynamics around me and equipping myself to respond in the moment in the service of everybody around me in the role that I'm expected to play? Now, we know, don't we, at that peak performance level, it requires that foundation of well-being. And Leading Well was founded on that premise. Why? Because prior to founding Leading Well, I noticed a lot of my clients, uh, men and women, but certainly a lot of women, were achieving promotions and career success, but for a 
very high personal price that often drove them out of those roles anyway, ultimately. I mean, when you're running an organisation, and I'm thinking examples of people who I've seen as CEOs or you know, people in very senior roles in organisations, maybe not the person at the top. If I talk to them about well-being, they'd be like, well, what are you talking about, Vanessa? Because it just it doesn't quite fit in the, the, the dialogue of running businesses. How are you able to have that conversations with senior leaders and and talk about well-being when you know you're not talking about strategy or accounting or profit and loss it's about well-being it's a very difficult conversation to step into how have you managed that well the world's changed luckily uh nearly eight years ago when leading wrong was brand new it was exactly like that you like what People would be often raising the eyebrow and going, I thought we were talking about leadership. We're now you're talking about well-being. What's going on? And, uh, well, COVID's one of the things that really, really did bring that element straight into the boardroom. I have just come from uh, a telco earlier today. I went to the ladies and I closed the bathroom door and there's a well-being initiative for every single month of the year. You know, December's well-being was, I was taking notes, December's well-being was survive Christmas, come to a well-being seminar on how to, I'm thinking, wow, it's really here. Organisations have embraced um, well-being and there's a, there's, a, there's a national framework now on psychosocial risk factors. People are talking about psychological safety, left, right and centre. So it's hit the airwaves, there's been a tipping point and many organisations are realising that they, to ignore wellbeing will be at their peril. I remember being in a HR senior role a few years ago now, and I was asked, could you put together a wellbeing strategy? It must be about 10 years ago nearly. And oh, I guess it was yeah. only just starting to become a thing. And we just didn't, we genuinely didn't know where to start. We were like, <laughs> what does it mean? So it was a good, um, good journey for me to understand what wellbeing meant and the impact it has on people. And I now, um, I'm in a, another role in HR and I actually have a wellbeing month. Try and follow what else is going on nationally or internationally. So it's not just a complete at a tangent, but there's, but it, there is so much material online now just talking about wellbeing generally and the, the benefit it brings to an organization. But I guess for you and your, the work you do is perhaps doubly important for leaders because the shoulder of responsibility for somebody in a leadership position and the responsibility of managing other people. If you, I guess if you can't manage your own wellbeing, you know, you're not really fit to manage the well-being of others. Well and truly. I, I spent quite a lot of time coaching in the sports industry uh, with the New South Wales Institute of Sport, uh, the Australian Sports Commission and some other commercial sports. If you have a look at, and this is, you know, very well known that those elite athletes are remarkably well-resourced for their well-being and yet a leadership role which has similarly extremely high demands to be switched on an inordinate amount of time needs similar resourcing because when leaders are on those shaky foundations that's when we get strife inside these organizations because all eyes and ears and senses are trained on these senior leaders so when they do get really really shaky a lot of people notice and it creates a real impact of a sense of safety across that whole organization I've worked with leaders that have been up on bullying charges and harassment charges and suddenly they're aware that they need coaching. And in every single case, they have not had the foundations that they need to 
successfully operate in their role. But let's just bring it back to women and leadership and around culture. Because when we first sort of met, we had this, we had a conversation that you were going to come on my other podcast, um, conversations about company culture, but I've disbanded that one, as you know. So tell me, what kind of company culture really enables women to strive? I mean, you use the word strive, so I'm going to use it because I think it's a great word. What do you think is the right company culture for that to happen? I think I think an, an open and inclusive company culture is really important. Uh, we hear a lot about diversity, equity and inclusion nowadays, but it needs to actually be noticeable on the ground. I think the other thing that's important in that is that the stated belonging rules match the enacted belonging rules. When and we know that will never be perfect. We know we'll always put up aspirational values and principles and visions and missions. But it's really important that uh, women are supported with that level of clarity and they're not second-guessing. A lot of anxiety comes about, I notice, just trying to second-guess what's required to fit in. When you were talking about what you state, the values and the ways of working and the reality – I see on a regular basis, or I hear stories through this this podcast at my network of HR people around flexible working, which is a really good example. And we've you'd mentioned it earlier of the company saying, you know, we we promote flexible working, we you know, we welcome those conversations. And when it comes to the crunch, those people who are either part time or rec- who ask for part um, flexible working or something, you know, there's an eye roll moment. There's a sigh from the manager there's a oh we can't make that happen you need to go and talk to hr all those sorts of they're not even micro signals they're pretty in your face signals that this is not welcomed at all and yet flexibility benefits everybody it isn't just a gender it benefits everybody i don't know again i don't really know what my question is really but it's more of an observation that companies and people in leadership have huge responsibility to enable these and to make sure they're in practice but many companies will say one thing about flexible working, but the reality is so different. And I think it's, I think that's, well, I've, I've just seen fear in people asking for flexible working requests because it feels really uncomfortable to have that conversation. And I guess leaders don't look forward to those because this is incongruence between what people are saying and what people are actually happening. I mean, is that, do you, do you find that? Yeah, I, um, it's, it's improved. I've noticed that it's definitely improved. I'm seeing more and more flexible working arrangements going in. And I think there's an increasing hunger as well that's not being met. And definitely, uh, depending on how senior you are, it can be harder to get those flexible working arrangements. Uh, And those boundaries are being pushed in both directions. Obviously, the organisation has certain requirements in a role that require a certain amount of presence in that role. Uh, and I'm seeing creative arrangements, job sharing and things like that working quite effectively. And I'm also seeing that women are getting more courageous to ask for what they need in terms of flexible working. They need to know their worth in able to do that and succeed as well mm-hmm. because these women are not wanting to compromise necessarily and good on them. They need to be able to ask for what they need to be able to sustain themselves in a given role as well. I just want to talk about mentorship or sponsorship. I mean, they are slightly different. Now, you mentioned you've had teachers along the way, some good, some bad. Have you had a, a mentor? 
I've had several mentors uh, over the years and they've been absolutely incredibly helpful. Uh, I I found myself in a previous organisation on the board and then chairing that board. Had I not had a mentor, I'm really not sure where I would have landed in some kind of strife. Uh, I had a wonderful, wonderful mentor during that phase. I have mentors to this day on specific aspects of leadership development, making sure that I always apply it to myself before I run around applying these uh, development concepts to others. And and I support, we support mentoring programs. We facilitate big industry programs and enterprise programs. In fact, I was in a, a, a um, organization focused on climate this morning and they're designing a mentoring program. And it, it's the essence of mentoring that makes it so powerful. It's that gift of spirit of sharing and wanting to see somebody else grow and develop. And it's it's a privilege to be providing that on the mentor side. And it's obviously a privilege to be receiving that as a mentee as well. But I long live mentoring. <laughs> it's so, so important. And how did you select or find your mentors? Uh, necessity. <laughs> Being the mother of invention in most cases, realising that and maybe many women find this um, sense of being fast-tracked somehow. How did I get here? And am I ready to be here? I don't think I'd be here quite yet. And looking around and going, who's been here a while and how could I learn from them? I think it's so important, isn't it, to declare that we're learning. I, I feel like I'm always learning. Working in the field of leadership, I never stop learning. There's always more to take in and to expand and to grow and mentors have won amazing support to do that. And I think it is important that women or particularly people who might not feel well represented in the sphere of which they're operating, perhaps it's 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 our Indigenous or whoever it might be, I think it is really important to provide that extra support because that's how we get that really diverse workforce and different points of view um, surrounding and less myopic decisions as well. You talked about your own development, um, particularly in the leadership space. What's one book that you've read either recently or just in the past that's had such an impact on your thinking around leadership? Oh, it's a really good question. Okay, very left field. It doesn't have to be one, I suppose. Here we go. <laughs> Autobiography of a yogi. <laughs> you weren't expecting me to say that, were you? <laughs> no, tell me more. Oh, I um, I stumbled upon it uh, about a year and a half ago and uh, I've always done yoga actually. When I was 14, it were, there were no people doing yoga. My friends were doing netball and I said to my mother, I need to do yoga. still don't know where I got it from. There's no one in my surrounds ever even used the word. I don't know, but it was something in me. And uh, my mother was great. I still did netball, but she found a yoga school for me. And it was all really about the body, though. The breathing was great, was really, really great. But I, I knew that there was a lot more to it than just how to strengthen the body and how to breathe and how to ground. And um, strangely, that book just appeared on my Kindle. I still don't remember actually buying it. I think, you know, when you buy a book and it says other things you might be interested in, and I didn't even realise I clicked on it, but I've loved it. It's, um, yeah, it's just, it took me into another culture. 
Uh, it took me into just a whole other view on the world and making meaning of the world. And um, it was lovely, actually. It's been, and so it's reminded me of the vital importance of finding that way to stay present, to be mindful, and to be okay with not having all the perfect answers. And to remember that we don't attract anything that we're not actually equipped to succeed in. And if indeed we find it's not easy, then we should always reach out and resource ourselves and call on help. So my next question is around what or who, sorry, which female leader, doesn't have to be a traditional um, leader of business, but which female leader has really caught your eye or or made you really maybe have a think about leadership and, and you've thought, yeah, she's successful? That's a really good question too. I mean, I've got many female clients, um, not allowed to name them, of course, <laughs> who's, who's inspired me time and time and time again. It's a good question. I think I need a little bit of time to think. Um, oh, okay, yes. Do remember her name? The CEO is an excellent CEO of a construction business and um, she has done wonders. Amazing. She's been great. I've heard her speak uh, probably about two years ago. And so she introduced, I mean, it sounds dreadful, but it's actually good. She introduced the six-day work week, which is way too long. But in construction, it's remarkably short. Yeah, true. Huge risk and um, really amazing. Um, that organization's just gone absolutely through the, through the roof. Alison Mirrams, who she's, I believe she's now in a chair role, but she was previously CEO of Roberts and Co. She did a very courageous thing and she introduced the six day work week, which I know when people are talking about the four day work week, that sounds outrageously too demanding. But in the construction industry, it's a really brave thing to do because they rely on the seven day work week. And so uh, she managed to completely transform that organisation. Got a lot of pushback from a lot of men in the industry, uh, but courageously pushed through and that organisation has gone from strength to strength and is a real magnet for good people in construction to come and work there. So a lot to admire about her leadership. I'm really glad you said that it, it does attract really good talent because that's so important is actually – there are so many levers that as a leader or CEO you can pull that actually will maybe be scandalous in the industry, but they do attract the best people and people want to stay. So it's not just about attraction, it's reten- attraction, it's about retention, retention. as well. Well, yeah. truly. Yeah, there's, the stats in that organisation have been absolutely fantastic. So Alison Mirrams has been asked to speak on a lot of stages. It's a tra- it's it's transformational. It's a good example of transformational leadership, not just for the people and the retention, but their families and the ripple effects from that into society is is remarkable. Mm. And just good to prove that you don't have to do what is traditional in the industry to be profitable and to be successful, whatever definition of success they might be going under. But I think that's great. What's your one piece of advice to women who are listening and are in leadership positions? What would you advise them to do to be able to strive in whatever industry, whatever business, whatever role they're doing? I think it's really important for women to be able to 
come from their heart as well as their amazing super minds, these leaders. It's, it's, it's such a strong advantage. I mean, the Corporate Leadership Council said over 10 years ago now that emotional engagement in the workforce has four times the ROI than just rational. And I think we can get trapped as women that we have to, we, of course, we have to have the rational, but to really bring that heart and that mind together and the intuition for that matter, because I think women are incredible intuitive leaders. And so really to integrate, you know, the rational, the emotional, the intuitive and allow themselves to be all of who they are. Thank you for that. And also thank you for being on the show. It's We wouldn't believe it, but we've been talking for about 35, 40 minutes, something like that. So Pleasure. unfortunately, we always have to wrap these things up. But Vanessa, thanks so much for being on the show. How can people find you? People can find me at leadingwellgroup.com.au. Uh, our website's there. I'm also on LinkedIn, Vanessa Fudge. Told I have a sweet surname. <laughs> Well, I will put all those contact details in the show notes so people can reach out to you. They can understand a bit more about you personally, because I know there is a little bit about you and also just find out about leading well as as well. So thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Vanessa. So lovely chatting to you. Um, Thank you for those wonderful questions too. You've really made my mind go in a new direction. 